Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. We've got some juicy wrestling with deep questions about racism and the other isms to do today for Spirit in Action as we visit with Max Clow about his book, Race and Social Change, A Quest, a Study, a Call to Action. This book started about some 15 years ago as Max's thesis at Harvard as he was getting his Doctorate of Education in Development and Psychology. After he got his Ph.D., Max Clow spent more than a decade working in Boston as the Vice President of Leadership Development at City Year, a program of AmeriCorps, and in the last few years, he has been the Chief Program Officer for the New Politics Leadership Academy. We'll learn about what these programs entail, but especially about race and social change, and about something called the Camp Anytown Separation Experiment, as Max Clow joins us today by phone. Max, I'm delighted to have you here today for Spirit in Action. Hi, thanks for having me. And I'm catching you, of course, in the middle of a very busy day. Uh, your work right now is with the New Politics Leadership Academy, I think? Yes. Is that what keeps you busy day to day, every day? It is. Are there other organizations and groups that demand a bit of your time, let's say? Because I think leadership is a wide societal issue, so I, I can't imagine that just being chief political officer would be enough for you. <laughs> well, New Politics Leadership Academy is what I focus on, and then trying to get the word out about this book is the other piece of my work right now. And before that, you were the vice president leadership development at City Year. I think you must have worked with City Year for a decade and a half or something. I was there for 10 years. Yeah. I want to explore a lot about City Year because I think that is formative, at least to some degree, in the solution that you propose in race and social change. Yes. Your experience there definitely, I think, made a big difference. But we'll move on to a couple other things. And... People who are listening probably have not heard the name Max Clow before, unless, you know, Huffington Post or a number of the other places where you've had some things published. And they're maybe even less likely to know about Camp Anytown. Could you tell folks what Camp Anytown is? Sure. Camp Anytown is a residential week-long youth leadership program that's actually been run for close to 70 years, for a very long time, all around the country, in multiple states across the country. And it brings together a very diverse group, usually about 40 high school students, for a week of exploring isms like racism and sexism and anti-Semitism and Islamophobia and, and all of those different things in a really intense kind of way. And it's, you know, focused on helping people kind of move beyond those isms and really connect as a community and get past that stuff. A very central part of the book, Race and Social Change, is your consideration of what's called the separation exercise. Yes. Do the youth come into this program knowing that that's there? No. You know, they come for a week of exploring social justice, and they know they're going to have some really meaningful conversations about all those isms we talked about. But most of them don't know that there's this exercise that is integrated into the program. It comes as a surprise. And how did you first experience the separation exercise? So I was getting my doctorate in education, 
and I was studying youth leadership, trying to understand how programs thought about youth leadership and taught youth leadership. And it was in that context that I visited a Camp Anytown program because uh, it calls itself a youth leadership program. And I was just, you know, trying to talk to the program people and the participants. And then I saw what happened with this exercise, which happens on the last morning of the program. And it just kind of stopped me in my tracks and really changed the course of my life. And I got that from the book. I mean, I understood that that was it. But you were an observer in that case. You weren't a participant of. You were already in your 20s, I think, at that point. Correct. You saw something happening. You mentioned three examples, uh, three studies that you did of separation exercise happening back in 2004. The one that you saw happened in what year, and was it different in qualitatively from the other three that you saw? So I, I believe it was 2002 when I first encountered this. And you know, if, for your listeners' sake, if I can just briefly explain what the exercise is and how it works. You know, the participants gather in a circle before breakfast, as they have every day. But then on that morning, the, the program directors do something unusual. They separate them all into groups, whites, Asians, Jews, Latinos, uh, LGBTQ, blacks. And they tell them very sternly, don't talk to members of other groups and don't make eye contact with members of other groups. And then they go into breakfast and the white kids go first and get unlimited servings and a big table to sit at. And every group lower in the hierarchy gets less resources until the black kids are sitting on the floor with very little food to eat. And they call it the separation exercise. And it's very clearly an attempt to simulate a hierarchical, segregated Jim Crow style social system. But the educational purpose is to give participants a chance to practice challenging these, these systems. And what happened between breakfast and lunch that day were events that in some really amazing ways mirrored events in the real world civil rights movement. And I just watching that unfold, realized here's a chance to study the process of social change in a Petri dish using, you know, the tools of social science and rigor in ways that, you know, I just can't imagine a, a better way to kind of systematically understand this. So, you know, I had stumbled on it and then I decided this has to be the focus of my dissertation. And that's when I chose to watch three more of them and use that as the focus. And I will say, you know, as I talk about in the book, those exercises unfolded differently. Every one of them unfolded differently with some shared underlying Themes. So there was both difference and um, commonality across these exercises. And as I've noted, this was long ago. I mean, this is uh, 14, 15 years ago that uh, you actually did this study. In 2005 is when you got your PhD. Mm -hmm. Why did you wait till now to put this out there? Why? What is it about this moment in time that takes this thing that was clearly stunning to you back in 2002, 2004, why wait this long where you just decided you share, actually share the riches with the world? <laughs> yeah, I appreciate the question. It was very challenging to do this work. It really involves staring directly at some very dark forces in the world and some very dark corners of human behavior. And, you know, when I finished it, I just kind of felt like I needed to put it away. I couldn't continue to work on it right away. And I luckily landed this job at City Year that felt incredibly meaningful and got to work in this national service world and just kind of didn't think about it for five years. But then, you know, the killing of Michael Brown happened and there was this kind of study stream of really terrible events in the news around race. And I just started to feel like, I think this is enough of a contribution that I need to get it out. And that was when I decided I have to go back and really do a major rewrite and make it work as a book. But I just felt like if it could do any good, I had to go back and get it out into the world. So that explains the long gap. 
I want to say something for our listeners about the writing that happens in Race and Social Change and subtitle A Quest, A Study, A Call to Action by Max Clow. The writing, I'm mean, clearly the source that you started from was your PhD thesis, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is written for the public. And I've only encountered a couple cases. Uh, one of them is Betsy Leander Wright. When I interviewed her, she had what she had written as her thesis. And at that university, they say, don't write it for the academic world, write it for the world. Mm. And so there's a translation you have to make from just academic. So it's very clear to me that there's a combination in this writing that is scholastically of the level that is needed for you know your PhD. But there's also what I would call a very clear spiritual. It's very heart-driven. And I don't know if that's really allowed in PhDs. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. No, that's exactly why I rewrote it. Did you have to make sure it wasn't included? Was that hard back in 2005 to not include it? And how does it feel to actually write your heart as well as your mind? Oh, I, I love that you picked that up. Absolutely. I, you know, the way I had to write this to get my degree and to get out of academia, I really felt like I, um, I had to shut down my heart. It had to be very much from the head and very kind of dry and intellectual in a way that was not my experience of doing this research and was really not the way I related to it. And so getting to go back and rewrite it was really a much more kind of authentic, this is what I really want to say about what I saw, what meaning we should make of it. So again, folks, race and social change. You'll find a lot of material as you're reading this book, folks, and I do hope you pick it up and enrich your life and your worldview with it. There's a lot in this book that is tremendously valuable intellectual resources. I want to talk about a few of the studies that you mentioned, uh, the Stanford Prison Experiment, mm-hmm. the Blue Eyes, uh, Brown Eyes teaching method that was used in schools. I want you to just briefly outline uh, the three, or I guess maybe it's actually four, different kind of studies which are part of the background for how does race, how does our racism, our isms, how do they propagate in the world? Yeah, so I knew when I watched this separation exercise happening, I kind of recognized instantly that it extends a long tradition of classic social psychology exercises. And many of them are kind of so infamous that they're known beyond the boundaries of social science. So the first one that many people have heard of is the Milgram experiment, which was developed by a professor at Yale named Stanley Milgram, who was um, obsessed a little bit with the Holocaust and just wanted to understand how can kind of ordinary German citizens do violence to their fellow citizens. So he developed this very controversial, provocative study where a uh, subject was brought in and sat in front of a shock machine, a, a machine that had levers labeled from mild all the way up to lethal, and was told to read questions to somebody in another room, and if the person gave the wrong answer, this person was supposed to administer increasingly high levels of shock. And what the subject didn't know was that it was actually an actor. There were no shocks being administered. This was, you know, uh, but there was an actor who was pretending that these shocks were um, being administered. And the question was, would if an authority figure was standing over this person and saying he must continue, would they continue to give shocks even up to a, a lethal level? And everybody said, this is crazy, you know, no more than 1% would go through with this. And in the end, 60% of participants went all the way up to the lethal level of, you know, lever, thinking that they were administering a level of electrocution that would kill somebody because there was an authority figure standing over them saying, you have to do this. And it was really a powerful uh, example of the power of obedience in our lives, how much of a force that is. 
So that's the first one. And then there's another one called the Stanford Prison Experiments done at Stanford uh, in the 60s. They turned a basement of a Stanford administrative building into a simulated prison. And again, they, they took a group, I think it was about 22 students, all kind of well-adjusted, ordinary students, randomly divided them into groups of prisoners and guards, and then just kind of let this exercise run where the guards were overseeing the prisoners. They expected it, they had planned to let it go for two weeks, they had to stop it after six days because the guards had become so cruel and just, uh, you know, really uh, being cruel to the prisoners. And the prisoners were clearly going under intense emotional distress. They just realized that they had to stop it. So it's another example of kind of the power of institutions to shape behavior in dark ways. And then there's the brown-eyed, blue-eyed experiment, which was run by a, she's now famous in the anti-racist education world. Her name is Jane Elliott. She woke up after the assassination of Martin Luther King and realized she needed a, to find a way to help her classroom of all white elementary school students understand racism. So she came up with this experiment where they walked in and she said, today everybody with blue eyes is superior and better than everybody with brown eyes who can do nothing right. And she led the class that way and just created this kind of social system of privilege and oppression based on eye color. And very quickly the kids internalized it. And the blue-eyed kids thought they were superior and the brown-eyed kids thought they were inferior. And then about a day and a half in, she flipped it around and said, today the brown-eyed kids are superior. And it was a really powerful example of how these systems are internalized and leave us to treat other people differently and believe things about ourselves in really powerful ways. And I'll pause there. Well, I don't know that you should pause. It's part of the gripping narrative that is included in racial social change. Even the blue-eyed, brown-eyed experiment, which has been repeated and done in different settings, even that, I think, is not considered morally acceptable to do anymore, right? It's it's prohibited. Certainly, the Milgram's experiment with, uh, I guess, torture, it's not considered allowed anymore. Why not? Because, in fact, it's going on every day in society. I, to make it illegal when it's actually happening every day outside the experimenter's booth. Yeah. So all of these exercises are ethically questionable. And I talk about it in my book. This separation exercise very much fits in that category. It is an ethically questionable thing to do. And I do think they actually made this research they made it illegal, so you can't pursue it. And they made that decision in the 70s after there had been this string of provocative studies. Um, just they thought, that, you know, it was too potentially damaging. And I have to say it was kind of, I was able to do this because I could make a case to the Harvard Institutional Review Board that this exercise was going to happen whether we were there or not. We were literally just going to watch an exercise that we were not creating. And uh, they accepted that. We, were, you know, we could not proactively create this exercise, but they uh, accepted our argument that we were just going to reserve something that would happen whether we were there or not. So it allowed us to kind of learn from this, even though nobody could, you know, no grad student today could actually set up something like this proactively. You know, I grappled, I, I continued to grapple with it all the way through. And as I talk about in the book, I did ultimately come to a decision that I thought after watching the long two, three hour debrief, ultimately this was an empowering experience. For, t for participants, and ultimately, if it could help more people attain a higher consciousness around how these dynamics work, it was worth being with the ethical grayness of this exercise. So that was the decision I came to. 
I'm going to toss in my two cents, and I'd really appreciate a little bit more insight about how Max Klaus sees this, right? But my perspective on it is the reason that some people are thinking it's questionable in terms of ethics is because it makes people uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. It makes people see things within themselves. And I think a lot of people pay a lot of good money to go to therapists to get the same thing, too. But And to have it uh, really the health of our society, people need to see how they tick internally in order to be better agents in our society. In fact, uh, this was, what, 20, 30 years ago or so. I'm Quaker, and I've worked with youth, in particular high school youth, in our regional group. We had a retreat, and I wanted to do a workshop for them that I thought would help them learn to be better peace workers. So I invented something. It really didn't have enough structure and such to be really well thought out. But the exercise was a make me mad. And so one person would be facing another person. I paired off everybody, and it says, okay, your job right now is to make the other person mad. And so they can experience what it's like to be provoked and uh, see how you deal with that. And I'm sure that would be ethically questionable yeah. in the environment you're talking about. And and I experienced some of the angst of it while I was uh, observing. I mostly, I'll have to tell you, Quakers are really bad at being provocative in the anger <laughs> department. But <laughs> there was only one or two people who actually did or said anything that I thought was even mildly provocative. And But I think, how do we learn to handle the stressful situations of the world if we don't practice in place? So that's my take on it. And this is this Mark helps me speaking. Does Max Clow, uh, do you have any wider guidance for the the community that is, I think, prohibiting what is would be a vital learning experience? Yeah, I mean, I was very clear. The ethical question here was not, are you going to create this unjust system? The ethical question is, are you, are you willing to bear witness to this system that causes pain to so many of these young people? And in that question, I thought, how can we say no to that and then bear witness to the injustices of the real world, where there are, you know, millions of people of color in prison and uh, whose opportunities are constrained, and this system is real. You know, the trauma injustices of the system in the real world are enormous. And I did think, how can we possibly uh, shift that in an effective way if we're not willing to be with all the discomfort that comes from bearing witness to this really tiny little simulation of how it all works? So that's where I came down. Has Camp Anytown come under scrutiny because they actually conduct this exercise? You know, it's amazing. One of the reasons why I did this was because I couldn't find any critique of it. And actually, just last year in 2018, for the first time, there was kind of a critical article in the San Diego Chronicle where somebody kind of said, hey, this, this is intense stuff. I'm not sure kids should be doing it. But it's been going on for decades and decades and decades, and there really has been very little critique of it, even though tens of thousands of young people have gone through it. And come out much better for it. I think that the world comes out much better when we awaken. And and that's one of the key things, folks, I want to mention about race and social change. At the same time, there's very clear scientific methodological study going on here. There's another thing that you're aiming at, Max. I'd like you to speak about awakening. Yeah, the subtitle of the book is A Quest, A Study, A Call to Action. And part of the book is my own personal journey of growing up middle-class, straight, white person in a Connecticut suburb, knowing that race was important. And over time, through several experiences that I talk about in the book, just recognizing how little I understood, how blind I was to the system, 
that I was immersed in because I had privilege in the system. And so I had my own personal experience of awakening. And I do think it, it comes through in the study of, you know, this is not about winning an argument or learning new facts. It is about awakening to a higher consciousness of a system in which we're all immersed, but we don't see because it's very hard to see from our kind of individualized view. And so, you know, this idea of getting woke, it's a metaphor that's used all the time in this world of social justice. And I do think it's a way we need to understand the work, that it's not just learning a new fact. It is really awakening to a, a consciousness that forces us to see the reality we're immersed in in a different way. And awakening is used also in religious, spiritual areas. Yes. Uh, certainly, that's... You know, the Buddha comes, that is the awakened individual. Mm -hmm. So there's this social justice thing. And a lot of times these days, social justice and religion seem to be antithetical in some people's minds. Do you find them so? And does that make any sense uh, to you? You know, I come from the Jewish tradition where there's a lot of talk of social justice. And I do think one of the reasons why I felt motivated and committed to do this work was because of my own spiritual tradition that says we have to... Uh, work on tikkun olam. We have to work on improving the world, and that's something that we have to do from our spiritual background and our, our history. Um, but I do think there's a, you know, in every religion, there are the parts that are really about doctrine and obedience, and then there are the parts that are about kind of awakening to a consciousness of the present in a really different kind of way. And so, you know, I don't think some religions do this and others don't. I think in every religion there are these different strains that focus on kind of being in the world in different ways. Maybe it'd be a good time now, Max, to talk about how the separation exercise plays out. You talk in the book about three different instances of observing it, and leadership in the camp makes them play out differently and the group of individuals is different. I mean, part of it's just the quantum options that are available in every heart and soul. Mm -hmm. They will play out differently, right? Clearly, exercise three is the one that most of us want to love because that's the one where they come to what we social justice advocates would like to see in the world. It didn't happen exactly like that in the other two cases. Could you overall describe why three is the, the beautiful one and one and two are uh, good, helpful, important, but maybe not uh, the cherished quest that we're after. Yeah, so you know, I just feel like it was important to view multiple of these to see you know, what patterns emerged across them, and they all unfolded in very different ways. And as I said, the third one I viewed was the one that mirrored events of the real world most closely in the sense that there was a long period of stasis, and then a member of the uh, one of the lower groups in the hierarchy, a member of the Latino group, reached out. He had been trying to do it a couple times, and on like the fourth or fifth try of reaching out across uh, the boundaries to a different group, all of a sudden they decided to go along with him, and you got a tipping point, and everything changed really fast, and you got this emergence of a very clearly self-organized nonviolent protest movement where a bunch of these young people came together and they crafted very quickly, they crafted a kind of 10 point value statement and then set out um, to create this nonviolent protest to invite more of their peers to join in this growing movement. And it really exhibited this kind of nonlinearity where after long periods of stasis, suddenly you got this huge wave of change and the self-organized kind of empowered people challenging the system. And it was really the only exercise that demonstrated that level of creativity and empowerment. 
And so it did raise the question of how does one create a system that produces that kind of aliveness? And that was not a question I expected to be asking, but it's what came through after viewing multiple of these exercises is how does, how does that happen? And it might be valuable to characterize at least roughly what happened in the first and second examples of this exercise. Yeah, the first one just kind of fizzled. They were all separated and placed into different parts, uh, standing in different parts of a soccer field and kind of around the camp. And the truth was not a whole lot happened. There were a few very minor efforts to challenge the system, but everything was just kind of low energy and not a whole lot happened. And then in the second one, the directors made this very uh, strong choice to bring everybody together for a song session, which was that had been part of the daily rituals, was everybody comes together to sing inspiring songs. And it was really a very strong choice to bring everybody together into this experience that in the other exercises, they kind of created these rules and then let things unfold. And then that one, the director really made a different kind of choice. And on the one hand, it was that second one actually had the least number of students who felt empowered. Everybody said it felt so bad to be disconnected from people and to have to be stuck with our group. But there was a very small number of people who felt empowered to do anything about it. Again, there were very different outcomes in all of these. And it seemed to be a result of different ways of being of the directors that created these situations. Folks, you're listening to Spirit in Action. NorthernSpiritRadio.org is our website because collectively we're called Northern Spirit Radio. Since 2005, we've been producing both Spirit in Action and Song of the Soul for a syndicated broadcast across the United States. There's some 41 stations nationwide carrying our programs currently. On our website, NorthernSpiritRadio.org, you can find links to our guests. So when you want to get a hold of Max Clow, there's multiple ways to do that. But perhaps the easiest is to go directly to his website, MaxClow.com, M-A-X-K-L-A-U.com. The link's on NorthernSpiritRadio.org, and follow the link, and you'll find Race and Social Change, A Quest, A Study, A Call to Action. Also on our site, you can post comments. Two-way communication is the best kind, folks, and unless I hear from you, I don't think you're doing your part for this broadcast. There's also a donate button. This is full-time work supported exclusively by listeners. It's not supported by government or by corporations. It's because you, the listener, want to see it continue. Please help us and even more so support your local community radio station. Alternative media is absolutely crucial in this world. And that coming from the community has such power to change. And I think that's even part of what we learn as we discuss with Max Clow about his book, Race and Social Change. How does change happen? We're going to explore some more of that in a moment. But first, remember to go out there and support your local community radio station. When Max Clow wrote Race and Social Change, it was already now 14 years after his, uh, he received his Ph.D., and this was his thesis material. One of the things that I was wondering, Max, if it was actually included in your thesis was your discussion about what I know as chaos theory. And, and that's mainly, I know it as chaos theory because I'm a physicist. Mm-hmm. I taught physics in Lisee, a high school in Togo, West Africa. And when I came back, I taught at UW-Milwaukee. I don't have a PhD in physics, and yet I've taught higher levels than perhaps some people would say my level of documentation. 
so physics, I'm used to thinking very strongly in physics ways, and there are these behaviors which are not linear, as you mentioned, nonlinear behaviors. But they happen in all of creation, and that includes, therefore, in human behavior and societies and biological communities. We see this thing called nonlinearity. It's, uh, you see fractals happen over orders of magnitude. Could you talk a little bit about what that's got to do with race and social change? Yeah, so you know, I talked about how I thought this separation exercise extended a tradition of social psychology experiments. And the way it extended that tradition into kind of unexplored terrain was to really be a full complex system, you know, multiple groups of groups and the whole system undergoing the process of change. And part of it was my own background was studying complex systems. And I realized here was a chance to kind of empirically observe a system undergoing a process of change. But I also really felt like we couldn't really understand what we were seeing if we didn't have a grounding in this relatively young science of complex systems. So I, you know, a couple chapters of the book are dedicated to just here's, here's what we know about systems and we need to bring that lens to thinking about what happens when we watch the system undergo change. Now, I don't know if you'd agree with me. Maybe, maybe you wouldn't or else I'm undercutting your thesis. I see watching the separation exercise happening three times as insufficient data to to plot what actually happens. And folks, there's some 50 pages of appendices to this book where he lays out the specific data that they observed in the course of the three exercises. In order to see the full complexity of the situation, I don't think three cases is sufficient, but maybe that's all the time you had before you can get your PhD. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Right. I I did have to graduate. I did have the rest of my life waiting. And, you know, I do think there's interesting insights while also honoring that three is a limited number. And you're right. There's certainly, if we were able to do 10 or 20, I'm sure a lot more interesting stuff would, would also emerge. Again, I do work, at least part of my mind works from this physics computer background that I have. Mm-hmm. I've got actually a kind of unusual education because I was a computer science physics major, I was a math major, and a speech communications major. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually a French minor. Wow. So my mind works in various ways. And I was very interested in your degree because I think it influences how you think. I, w- I was just surprised the way it's described is you have a doctorate of education in human development and psychology. And this is from Harvard Graduate School. So human development and psychology in education, is that a thing or is that your thing? I mean, is, are there other people with this same degree? Yeah, that's the name of the program. You know, and it differentiates from administration, planning, and social policy or the, you know, kind of educational administration people. But yeah, that's the name of the program at, at the ed school. So human development and psychology What's the objective of the kind of people who are supposed to be produced out of this doctorate? Well, it is primarily a research doctorate. And some of the famous people, uh, Kohlberg and Gilligan, who are really important in the field of moral development, were there. And Eric Erickson taught there. And some of the big names in developmental psychology were working at the Ed School at Harvard. So it really is kind of the theory and research related to human development is what that program is about. In your work, though, once you've graduated from this right away, you got into City Year, and maybe now would be a good time to describe what that is, VP of Leadership Development. So leadership development, clearly I understand human development, psychology, there's this connection there. But it's not just education. I, I'm, I'm a little bit unclear if you're following the path that was set up by your degree, by your doctorate. <laughs> That's fascinating. So, 
you know, part of my story is I'm an alum of four different service programs, and I've done two years of service in Israel and led service trips to Ghana and Honduras and really was, you know, always felt like service was my home. Academia, I, I was you know, academic enough to get a doctorate, but I would fill my summers with these service programs and just again and again felt like this, this is my home. This is where I belong. It's in the service world. And I will say that a lot of folks in my program were very focused on K-12 education or higher education. I was always interested in what does it mean to develop leaders through service experiences, which, is, you know, there's not a lot of programs that focus directly on that, but it was, it was my passion. And I was able, I feel very fortunate, you know, when I got out of the program, I was able to land this job at City Year, which is an AmeriCorps program, a national service program that invites young adults ages 17 to 24 to do a year of really intense full-time service focused on keeping students in high-need schools in school and on track to graduate. So, you know, I was supporting these core members, and the core members were in, in schools and doing work in classrooms, K-12 classrooms. But my work was really how do you support a core member who's doing this demanding year of service that is, is really different from a traditional academic experience. Drastically different. Uh, now, I didn't go the AmeriCorps path. I have two stepsons who did AmeriCorps. I was in the Peace Corps, so I had my own experience of that. And sure. I, would, I would argue that my experience, my two years in the late 70s when I was in West Africa, I had the awakenings, I think, that go with Camp Anytown because I, I got to experience my privilege and I got to experience being the outsider. I got to – race means something very different to me because I was the one white person in my village. Yeah. I wish everyone could have these experiences. And so, therefore, Camp Anytown and all of these experiences, I think, would be so valuable in terms of awakening the world. Yeah. So you worked for quite a while with City Year, and that's Boston-based, but is it service nationwide, or is how wide does it serve? Yeah, it serves. It's now in 30 cities across the U.S. It's also international, so they're in South Africa. There are also multiple sites in the U.K. right now, so it's an international service movement. And you went from there to currently you're with New Politics Leadership Academy. You're the chief program officer. Tell me about New Politics Leadership Academy. What is it? What's your goal? What have you achieved so far? You've had five years maybe there? Three years, so even, even less than that. But we're a nonpartisan nonprofit that is focused on recruiting and supporting servant leaders to run for political office. And for us, servant leaders means to focus on both military veterans and also alumni of national service programs like AmeriCorps and Peace Corps. And we know there's a lot of these folks who have a really serious life commitment to service, and currently only a small number of them decide to serve through politics. And we also know politics is a very confusing, counterintuitive, difficult space. So for the folks who choose to do that, you know, we know there's a lot of opportunities to support them in being successful. So uh, we're trying to kind of create a, a bigger pipeline of those servant leaders to step into politics because we think one of the reasons our politics is so toxic and broken and stuck is because we have so few servant leaders who are in elected office right now. Servant leadership, a lot of people may not even have an idea of Robert Greenleaf and the whole background of that. And I, I like to note, by the way, it started from Carleton College in Minnesota, which is probably 80 miles or something from where I am. Mm -hmm. And it's where I met my wife and fell in love with her. Oh, nice. So <laughs> it's very important. Servant leadership is not what a lot of people think of in, in terms of politicians. Correct. Talk about what you see in the world now and what the vision is that you'd like to move us toward by the work of New Politics Leadership Academy. Yeah, I mean, servant leadership means your desire to be of service to others comes first, 
then you pursue positions of power because it expands your capacity to serve others. And I really think of it as a spiritual way of being in the world. Of uh, I think it's something you learn from the Peace Corps and from service programs of what does it mean to wake up every day and be committed to serving others and not being about your own ego or your own hungers for power or control or fame or any of that. And, you know, again, there's a lot of people in the country who have demonstrated by their life choices that they are in the world as servant leaders, but very few of them go into politics. And I think the folks who tend to go into politics these days are people who are driven by ego or desires for power or fame and those are kind of dark motivations. They get into these positions of power and try to take care of themselves instead of serving others. And I think we're, we're seeing the, what happens when too many of the folks go into politics from that motivation. Again, uh, the lack of servant leadership in our politics is not a result of a lack of servant leaders in our country. It's just not a lot of them make that choice to serve through politics, and we want that to change. And, of course, the big issue that you're trying to deal with in race and social change is the racism. But it, it I don't know. Do we have the proper word? You know, you said all of the isms, racism, sexism. There's bigotry of all sorts. What's the umbrella word for that? That's fascinating. I mean, I do think it's ultimately a white supremacist system that has kind of keeps white people at the top. And there's all these different isms that preserve that. But I do think, and but one thing I learned through systems is, you know, there's not necessarily a small group of folks smoking cigars who are in charge of all this. It's kind of a moment in human consciousness. We, we come into the world at a moment in the evolution away from that and towards something that's really much more equal and just and interdependent and interconnected. And what does it mean to take responsibility for that system at the moment we are a part of it, even if we didn't create it and, you know, we're not like responsible for it in a traditional sense, we do get to choose how we relate to it and how we respond to it. And every generation makes that choice, and that's what dictates what world is left to the kids who come after us. Just one thing I want to note, Robert Greenleaf, and uh, again, servant leadership, and you also talk about Parker Palmer in your book, and uh, both of them I know pretty well because of their Quaker connection. Sure. And Quakers have this whole access to peace and social justice and a worldview. Mm-hmm. Jews, I think, very largely because of the experience of being oppressed, became so involved in civil rights work, certainly, and a lot of other peace and justice work in the world, the Tikkun Olam that you mentioned already. Mm-hmm. What I want to reach out for is something that probably your other interviewers haven't asked about, the big picture overview that leads one to see not only your individual molecule-ness, but you're part of the complex composition of the world, mm-hmm. where you fit in it. For me, that is a spiritual question. Yeah, I think even if you don't use God words, it doesn't matter. That big picture that, that values more than just myself here and now and my narrow self-interest, you know, in uh, the exercise, the third exercise time through the separation exercise, I think you talk about the white males down watching a movie very comfortably and completely unaware of anybody else going through trauma. Correct. What have you seen in the world that best motivates people beyond their narrow self-identity? What certainly experiencing persecution can change a person's point of view. That probably is not ethically allowed either, to go out and persecute people just so that they get wiser. What have you seen actually working in the world that wakes people up? I've met a lot of people who love the world and care passionately about it 
and are pained by the realities they see. And that is enough to kind of fuel them to take a journey, to compel them to step out of their familiar, comfortable, ordinary lives to understand this stuff more deeply and to engage with it and to make change. And I think there's a lot of people who look at the headlines right now and what's going on in the world, and it is deeply troubling in a way that makes them wonder what they, what can they be doing differently? How can they step out of what is familiar and comfortable? I think for a lot of people, they really don't. There's a lot of just confusion. I just don't know. I don't know how to think about this. I don't know how to do things differently. I wish it was different, but I'm not quite sure what my path is to making a part of that. And I hope this book kind of awakens some folks to a higher consciousness in ways that help them see some pathways that might be meaningful for them. I'm very clear that my path is Judaism. I've become a huge fan of Joseph Campbell, the comparative mythologist, who studied myths all from all different traditions and all across from the dawn of human history up till modern Hollywood blockbusters. And he has this idea that these traditions, properly understood, they become transparent to transcendence. So they point beyond themselves to kind of universal truths that are bigger than the particular idiosyncratic, you know, kind of things they seem to be about. And I just find that super helpful. Of We all have our traditions. Some of us come from religion. Some of us have no religions, but do think deeply about what does it mean to be in the world. And to think that all those things can kind of become transparent and we can see through them to a universal journey that we each have to undertake, I think is a really powerful idea. Joseph Campbell's big idea was this hero's journey, where he said this is this story that's been told by all these different cultures across all of time. And it's the most basic. Somebody leaves behind their familiar, ordinary, comfortable world. They, are, they face a series of tests and challenges that transform them. And at the end of that, they get gifts that they use to be of service to others. One of the amazing things about the separation exercise was it kind of posits this existential condition of mankind, where we all come into the world in this part of this vast system that is, you know, transcends all of us. And we come into a particular place in it where we're surrounded with people roughly like us and we have our kind of comfortable place in that system. And the moment you step out of that, you encounter the injustices of the system and you face some serious discomfort and some real challenges that you have to confront. And in confronting those challenges, you learn things and you, you kind of discover resources in the self that you might not have known you have. And I just found like thinking of ourselves as immersed in these systems suddenly makes that hero's journey like basically inevitable. It's the only path to a higher consciousness is to take exactly that journey that Joseph Campbell illuminated so clearly. I want to put out a thesis, Max, that may be wrong, but it's my point of view. My opinion is that education, giving people facts, is not nearly enough. The awakening does not happen from facts. I think you, t- you speak about this pretty clearly yeah, in the book. Yeah, that. Sure. Yeah, yeah that, that awakening. You could even be doing mostly good work with, let's say, insufficient perhaps insufficient knowledge for the next step that society needs to take, that education alone, and there's so many people who say, all we need is the facts, all we need is education, anything more will just be putting in people's prejudices or Mm -hmm. their ignorance or their, you know, their feelings. I feel pretty strongly about this, obviously. Are you and I on the same page or? Absolutely. It's it's one of the reasons why I've focused my life on service experiences and not kind of traditional K-12 education. You know, I'm a fan of education and learning facts and reading books and all of that, but in my own life, that was not enough to help me truly internalize. It's not even just understand, but really transform my way of being in the system. 
And it has to be a lived experience. It has to be about physically stepping out of what's familiar and comfortable and becoming proximate to people with different backgrounds and confronting together real challenges in the world. That is the path people have to walk, and you cannot learn it from a book. I want to come back to something that we discussed at the beginning, and I don't think we ever explicitly said this, but in all three cases of the separation exercise that you went through, some of the follow-up questions you ask is, why didn't you break the exercise? Why didn't you change this at, at some point? And far and above all other reasons is that people meant, wanted to be obedient and there's peer pressure. That's what everybody else is doing. I've asked myself the question, how could people participate in the institution of slavery? Not just prejudice, not just racism, mm -hmm. but slavery where we sell away people's kids and we can beat them and do whatever horrors we wish to them. How could what are otherwise we would call really good people, people who we would find so friendly and wonderful and generous, and yet they could participate in this. Unless people wrap their mind around that. I was in part of a men's group uh, 24 years ago. One of the men in his check-in said, last night I saw Schindler's List, and you know what I learned from that? I, too, could be a Nazi. Right. And unless we understand how we could be the slaveholder, the Nazi, the person committing genocide in Rwanda as part of the Hutus or Tutsis, unless we understand that that is, could be us, we won't really understand what we need to do to change this world. And that's why race and social change is so important. The book you've written tries to get people to awaken to that possibility. Yeah. And, you know, I will say, even in the way that's framed, there's a consciousness that needs to shift. Of it. You know, it's in our kind of Western American individualistic, like, could I be a slave owner? Could I have been a, a guard, you know, in the Nazis? It's all about kind of my own personal choices, but it's powerful to frame it as could I have lived in a system that produced that and not challenged the system? It's a different way of thinking about it, you know, because this is not just about personal choices. It's about there are these systemic forces, that, you know, kind of systemic structures and dynamics, and obedience and conformity is about just kind of going along with these systemic structures and not challenging them, and it forces us to think about it a little bit differently. It's really vital questions, vital consideration, vital evidence, and vital theory that's all brought together in the book, Race and Social Change, A Quest, A Study, A Call to Action by Max Clow, who's still here with us today for a couple more minutes for Spirit in Action. Max, where do you go from here? Do you see hope for the people? I mean, you, you propose a solution in the book, and how close do you think that we could get to implementing that solution? Well, I, you know, I'm hopeful because I do think there are paths. I, I've seen the paths. I do think more people doing service, more people kind of taking their own hero's journey to step out of the familiar and comfortable and to understand this and achieve a higher consciousness. I do think it's possible to do it. I have also decided to try to live beyond hope and fear around this. Like it really, if you don't do it because you're afraid or you only do it because you believe your actions are going to change everything, you might stop the work. So just what does it mean to just be connected to right action and right, right words and take the right steps detached from the outcomes? And I think that's, you know, I, I don't know if we do everything we need to do. And I think it's safe to say in 100 years, things will be very different and racism will still be a part of America. But each of us gets to wake up and decide what are we going to do with our lives and respond to it in our own way. And in that, what does it mean to 
choose integrity and courage without worrying too much about is this going to make the change the world needs. There's one more thing I want to say in terms of gratitude that I have for you writing this book, Max, and that is a lot of books that are analyzing, looking at social problems are pretty good at isolating what is the problem and and some elements of that. You actually propose what I think is a solution that will help change society significantly, and that would be universal service, universal national service. And I'm totally with that program. Of course, I did the Peace Corps, and my son wanted to, and he, he, he backed off from it, and two of my four stepsons did national service. It's very clear that that transforms a person and gives them a greater view into the world. Powerful. Where is national service at in terms of consideration by our federal government? So it's important to note that the national service movement has really been around for over 30 years, uh, advocating, building constituencies, proving the idea. You know, it's kind of city year preceded AmeriCorps and kind of proved that this can be an idea that works. They have done amazing work to get it to here. I think it's very exciting that multiple Democratic presidential candidates are talking about national service as a pillar of their policy efforts of just we need more folks doing this. You know, I think it's very likely that we see a dramatic expansion of this in the years ahead. Just it's an idea whose time has come in this country that is so divided and so divided into bubbles and we just don't know each other. This is an idea that could really start to reweave the fabric of American community on a national scale. And I think there's a lot of people who understand that. Well, I'm grateful that you've done the analysis that's behind this, that you've done the visioning and the awakening personally, and opening that to community. That makes such a difference. And one of the things I try and highlight on Spirit in Action is not just the ideas, not just the factual education, but it's inspiring to me when I see people like you living for that vision of a better world and knowing where that comes from, because that plants seeds in my heart. And I hope all of our listeners, thank you for doing that work continuously. And thank you for joining me for Spirit in Action. Thank you so much for having me. And again, our guest was Max Clow. His website, Max Clow, is M-A-X-K-L-A-U.com. The link's on org. And again, our guest was Max Clow. His website, M-A-X-K-L-A-U.com. The link's on org. As we go out, I'm going to share with you part of a song by Ann Hills and David Roth, both of whom I've had as guests for my Song of the Soul program. It's a wonderful song, bravely staring racism in the face, kind of a hero's journey all in its own. The song is That Kind of Grace. Thanks to Catherine Thomas for production assistance on today's program, and we'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. That Kind of Grace, Ann Hills and David Roth. Sunday morning, Birmingham. Quiet in the church Palms were planted, house of God Children's blood on the cross And your daughter, she was one Angel without wings How could anyone forgive Those who do such things And when I sing amazing grace Your face is what I see I hope someday that kind of grace Will find its way 
Friday evening in Mobile, Klansmen killing time. Saw young Michael walking by, he would do just fine. Quiet student, mother's best, pleading for his life. They strung him up to make their point sharper than a knife. Beulah May, his mother stood. People all around in the courtroom listening as the truth was found. From her mouth, no curses fell, no profanity. I would do to others what I'd have them do to me. And when I sing amazing grace. Her face is what I see. I hope someday that kind of grace will find its way through me. Thursday afternoon in the car, turn the radio on. Verdict in Los Angeles. Oh, what have we done? Images of violence, yellow, black, and white. Fifty-three dead, millions lost. Who can win this fight? Then on the screen, a face of tears, trembling through and through. One we've seen too many times, beaten on the news. I could barely hear his words, full of fear and doubt. People, we can't live like this. We've got to work this out. And when I say. Amazing grace, that face is what I see. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song, 